How's it going? Good, good. Thank, thanks for making it. Um, sorry for the confusion. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and sorry, some of the guests uh, might have seen that I, I misconfigured the date because I actually set up three rooms at once, um, all, of, all of whose times changed, actually. Um, and I got the wrong date for this one. But in any case, I'm glad everyone is here. Um, and I'm glad um, Jacob Helberg has agreed to, uh, let me just share this via Twitter, has agreed to chat because I read your book and I was very interested by it. And I, and I know your book actually has made considerable waves inside the tech world, which um, is un- unusual for a couple of reasons. One, that someone from the tech world, such as you are, actually took the time to write a book. <laughs> it's usually pretty rare. And then two, that book actually did well. <laughs> oh, is it, oh, is that your COVID project, yeah. actually? Basically, I mean, I had sort of, I had um, sort of started playing with it before the pandemic, but uh, I think my timeline for publishing it would have probably gotten extended had it not been for a lot of uh, enforced time without doing anything during the pandemic. You know, it's funny. I it, it seems to mean that like people, not that this is the topic of the thing, but people actually had like COVID projects, right? And then COVID ended and people didn't actually finish it. Uh, I, I guess my COVID project was converting to Judaism. But anyhow, that's a whole separate thing. <laughs> Unrelated. I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, we can get into that at the, end of the, at the end of the hour, maybe, if you want to. But our, 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 well, yeah. I, I, I don't want to ask a personal question if, if you are. But in any case, um, so um, are, are you Jewish? I am. I can't, I can't say that I put in the effort to convert. I, uh, I was, uh, you know, just born into it. But... Uh, <laughs> But I have a well, name no. that converted, yeah. and it's actually quite hard. Well, depends which flavor of Judaism we're talking about. But, you know, as usual, the converts or the recent immigrants yeah, are always yeah. the, zealot, the zealots, right, who are the most patriotic or the most religious. Um, so, um, yeah, 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 exactly. Okay, but that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about your book called The Wires of War, which, by the way, has a stunning cover. I know it's kind of superficial, but the cover is really nice. Did you have a hand in that, or was that the publisher who put the, the cover together? Yeah, I did. Um, so I, I worked with a graphic designer um, that the publisher and I both selected. And I had um, I had a vague vision for what I wanted. And as we iterated, my the vision that I had became a little bit clearer. And the graphic designer ultimately did a, an incredible job implementing it. Yeah, it, it looks spectacular. I mean, I, I think someone... I, this is going to sound frivolous, but someone shared like your book or something. I'm like, wow, that's a really nice cover. I have to check this book out. And then like I, I DM'd you. I was <laughs> with my daughter in like a random bookstore in San Francisco. I'm like, oh, there's the there's the book. I need to buy it. Um, and um, so the book is called The Wires of War, Technology and the Global Struggle for Power. And um, it's, I mean, you seem like the perfect person to write this book because as I understand it, you're involved with the news policy team at Google. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and again, it's, you know, it's a small crew of us who are sort of tech insiders who actually were kind of dumb enough to, uh, you know, pay the opportunity cost of, um, of writing a book. But are, are, are you, but you're not still currently employed at Google then, or, or are you? No, no, no. No, I left in uh, early 2020. So I left partly because I want to start working on the book more actively, but I was also getting increasingly involved on the presidential campaign trail. I was um, traveling around with Pete Buttigieg and, uh, providing his campaign advice on foreign policy r- related issues, uh, particularly uh, with respect to China, and uh, eventually tipped over to President Biden's campaign, and um, and so you know obviously before the pandemic hit, it 
my all the plans that I had uh, laid out for the for 2020 were basically relying on the assumption that uh, we were not going to go into a global lockdown and uh, and the campaign was going to continue as it had in every single previous cycle. And so um, so I left Google because I was just spending a lot of time um, on the campaign trail at that point. And so it just made more sense for me to focus on that full time and um, and, you know, give my colleagues at Google the um, the ability to find someone to step into my shoes. Interesting. I, I wasn't aware you were actively involved in politics. I mean, that also makes you unique. Um, there aren't many people who, I mean, there's a lot of people who donate, but not many people who actually either work for campaigns or run themselves, which um, maybe we can get into that actually later. Um, I'm curious what you, I'm curious what your sure. theory is. Why is it the tech, in my opinion, punches under its weight when it comes to influence? Actually, it's relevant to your book because you have a whole chapter on the, the Silicon Valley DC divide. Um, but yeah. so just I, I've got I'm, I'm literally holding your book as as I speak. And so your book, um, you know, for those who who maybe were wondering what the title is about, it, I mean, it literally is about the sort of information war between, you know, the U.S. and its opponents, China and Russia. And you break it down in a very logical fashion, starting with the sort of software side of things and then um, going to the hardware side of things, which I found fascinating because I'm not a hardware guy and I never quite understood or realized the degree to which the CCP's tentacles have extended into, into our, into our actual hardware. And then, you know, you go into the hill in the valley, as, as I just mentioned. And then, um, unlike a lot of book writers, you actually have some, some pretty hard prescriptions about what to do, which I, I thought was interesting. So I, I don't know if you want to start at any particular point here, or you want to go in the order in the book, or what do you think, Jacob? Yeah. So, I mean, maybe a good place to start could be talking about what the gray war is to kind of Provide, help provide listeners a, a big picture context for the rest of the conversation. Yeah, please, please go ahead. I, 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 yeah, go ahead. I wouldn't try to outdo your description of it. <laughs> sure. So um, at a high level, one of the impetus for writing the book was uh, when I, I worked at Google and as well as in some of the work that I'd done previously and, uh, and, and at think tanks subsequently, it became very clear to me that one of the pervasive features of international politics became you know, a new emerging trend, which was that governments are increasingly targeting and leveraging technology as both uh, a tool of political power, as well as a weapon and uh, a source of political power. And so... Um, I began to ask myself and spent a lot of time thinking about how do you how do you define and think about um, uh, from a first principle standpoint uh, a, a paradigm where uh, international politics is increasingly being fought in what military experts call the gray zone beneath the conventional threshold of war. Today, you don't really see you know it's not like two centuries ago when France and Britain were constantly fighting wars. Uh, you don't see the U.S. and China fighting a hot war, thank goodness. Um, but but that doesn't mean that you know it's rainbows and butterflies and uh, they're totally at peace. And for a whole host of reasons that I write in the book, I actually uh, argue that we're you know as as a lot of Americans have felt at a, at an, an intuitive level for a long time, we're not really living in in an authentic peace between the U.S. and China right now. And so at the end of the day, the, the, the nomenclature that I settled on was that uh, we're in a gray war because gray zone conflict is a predominant and pervasive feature of international politics today. It's, it is uh, the, 
the the means and the theater through which uh, governments compete and engage in conflict worldwide to advance their interests. And so, um, as I explained in one of the chapters of the book, dual-use technologies have become weapons of first resort because they can be used uh, in very inexpensively and invite very little retaliation from their adversaries to produce very high-impact results. And so this is what I talk about, what I describe in the book as um, the destructiveness usability paradox, which is basically that if you if a country only has high yield nuclear weapons at its disposal, its only two policy choices are total annihilation of its adversary or total inaction. And so for that reason, uh, uh, a, a, a tool like high yield nuclear weapons aren't actually that usable from, you know, in, in terms of uh, the conduct of day-to-day political warfare. But if you have very advanced cyber weapons, uh, you can actually deploy those to produce uh, an enormous amount of impact to advance your interests in ways that actually invite very little retaliation or very low costs, uh, uh, relatively speaking. And therefore, they're used every single day. And so basically, the uh, a good chunk of the book then goes into detail about what these weapons are, how they're being used, you know, what the different fronts of the gray war are. I argue that there are two fronts. There's a software front and the hardware front. And, uh, and ultimately what this war, why we should care as Americans, what it means for us, our livelihoods, our companies, the future of democracy, and ultimately our way of life and what we should do about it. Right. And I think you actually use the phrase Cold War II in here somewhere as well, if I'm not mistaken, although, I mean, it might sound slightly dated. Language, I did, yeah. But um, to those who read Tom Clancy yeah. books in your teenage years, that might <laughs> that might resonate a little bit as well. Um, I, I mean, the right. So, I mean, the Grey War thing, and it's, and it's funny because uh, your book is chock full of examples, many of which I, I was reading about for the first time, and I'm not exactly living under a rock here. And yet somehow, you know, a lot of these news events that are of, again, ge- geostrategic importance, rise to the top of most feeds a lot less than a lot of other super frivolous news that we pay attention to, or maybe it's really my fault, but, um, but I mean, just to cite one example that, that did come to, to my example, and I'm not, I'm not sure if you mentioned the book or not, but um, you know, Israel's war against the Iranian nuclear program, right. Is, um, is a cyber war at this point. And they've, you know, the Stuxer um, uh, worm that basically made their centrifuges spin out of control, um, which is an interesting contrast, right, to the um, Israeli strike against the Iraqi um, nuclear reactor in the 80s, right? So it's, um, what you're sketching out, right, is in some sense that warfare is going to the metaverse, so to speak, in that it's it's virtualized. And you yourself have a chapter that's called um, National Sovereignty is Tech, Not Troops, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And, and to be clear, I mean, that doesn't mean that... Um, that doesn't mean that conventional wars will never happen again or that we shouldn't care about conventional wars at all, but that in a world where conventional wars become less and less, uh, are, are so costly that they're, they're much less likely than they used to be, uh, that so much of uh, the great, you know, what historians call the great game, the, the, the big geopolitical you know, dynamics and, and uh, chess maneuvers that happen uh, on a year-by-year basis don't happen you know, in a hot war context, they happen in relative peacetime. And so basically, um, it, it, it is going on through the gray zone. And so, 
you know, there have been a number of thinkers that have used different uh, frameworks and, uh, you know, nomenclatures, taxonomies to describe this. Some people have said, you know, it's an economic war, it's a technology war. And so the, the kind of all-encompassing lens that I describe is that ultimately the, the common through line throughout everything that China is doing, whether it's uh, producing 90% of the world's fentanyl and finding ways to illicitly export it to the United States at a time when the U.S. has 100,000 opioid deaths, uh, fentanyl-related opioid deaths a year, or uh, you know, two to three trillion dollars in intellectual property theft uh, uh, over the course of 10 years, or you know, you you run down the list: seven million manufacturing jobs lost to uh, um, you know all kinds of market distortions. Um, these are all very, very significant in terms of dealing a blow to uh, a great deal of American interests um, and the vitality of American society, but they don't amount to a shooting war. And so ultimately, they are taking place in the gray zone. Right, right, right. Um, right. So th- there's a lot of fronts to, to this war. I mean, so, and again, like I said, the hardware side of it, I find fascinating because it's really part of the world that I don't know about. Part of the world I do know about or feel I know about, maybe I'm deluding myself, but I, I was tangentially involved in some of the first chapter, which is the software war. And here is where I would maybe push back just a little bit um, because, um, so, so you mentioned a lot of the, the software side of things and you know, it's a lot of the stories that got a lot of play and are still getting play around um, you know, the Russian influence campaign in 2016 things like Cambridge Analytica, et cetera. And, well, you know, without any question, Russia actually did try to undergo an influence campaign. I I think there's pretty irrefutable evidence for that. Where I think I would quibble, or more than quibble, is, you know, the effectiveness of a lot of those campaigns. Um, Like, you know, I wrote a lot back when I thought I could make a difference, like most deluded writers, and wrote a lot of, like, furious wired pieces about how there was kind of an overreaction to the Cambridge Analytica thing, and how, well, again, it's all very real, right? There's no question that this was actually, a, you know, an op from Moscow. But, um, you know, the IRA and, like, the Jesus memes and the $100,000 in ad spend. And the end of the day, I found myself very skeptical that that actually, you know, could really have impacted the outcome of the election. And I, you know, I often made the snarky joke that, like, the $100,000, which, which is nothing, in the, you know, in the scheme of things, that the Russians spent is like the best marketing for Facebook ads ever, right? I projecting the thought that like 100K could could actually sway an election is probably the biggest sort of recommendation <laughs> for the Facebook's ad system, which by the way, it doesn't work that well, <laughs> even though I had a hand in building part of it. But um, yeah. so anyhow, yeah, I'm just curious if, if, if what, what your thoughts are there because I, I know that a lot of the consensus around that has also changed a little bit. Um, it's funny. It's ironic because I wrote, I, I, I talked so much trash about that back in the day, and this is public now. But I'm getting sucked into the damn Cambridge Analytica suit with Facebook. Actually, I'm being called to be a witness or whatever. Although I'm trying to get out of it. But in any case, I'm curious what your thought is there, and is the effectiveness of it, the effectiveness of it, not really the point? Is it really about the fact that this is the tip of the iceberg, and this is going to be sort of the world? Yeah. So, I mean, um, so as I, as I say in the book, I, I think I ultimately think where I land on this issue is that I ultimately think that the decisive and most important front of the gray war is going to be the hardware front of the war, much more so than the software front. With that being said, one of the, the big points that I make in, um, uh, in the chapter that covers the software part of the war is um, I think, I mean, regardless of it's so hard to be able to, 
you know, when, when an election is uh, decided based on 50,000 votes, the outcome could be decided by almost anything. And so it's so hard to know, you know, I don't, I don't think we'll ever know if that cause, you know, ch- could have changed the outcome or could it have not. But but it's almost um, I, I think it's almost, par- you know, it doesn't really intersect that much with the some of the other points that I make about how basically one of the things that I found, regardless of what impact it had on, on that specific election, one of the things that became very clear is that autocratic governments are trying to basically manipulate um, feeds and content platforms in a way to basically uh, create a new paradigm of modern day censorship. One of the examples that I give is that in the old days, in the days of analog, censorship was primarily about blocking content. And basically, um, you know, it was about whether content was in or out. You know, uh, it was about whether it was in it, featured in a newspaper, or in a book, or whether it was banned completely. Today, in the age of infinity feeds, it's about whether content is up or down, not just in or out, because the vast majority, and, and obviously, you know this from working in the tech industry, the vast majority of users that browse feeds will most of the time uh, engage with content that ranks at the top, and very few actually scroll through, uh, you know, to, to look at the content that is featured on the following pages. And so when you have foreign uh, autocratic governments that are basically trying to manipulate, intentionally manipulate the way that these platforms work by, for example, engaging in what I call fire hosing. So for example, when there's a topic that comes out that they're not happy about, that they'll have their state outlets that are basically going to try to overwhelm platforms by publishing uh, an enormous amount of information around those keywords and topics uh, to essentially swamp out the, the 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 viewpoint of everyone else and promote their own. The the effect basically is the same. It's it's basically about suppressing organic um, organic information about the topic and and promoting their own state sanctioned narrative. And I think that um, you know at the end of the day. And, you know, they're doing this obviously in deceptive ways. So a lot of times they're hiding the fact that they're doing this. They're doing this through outlets that pretend to be independent outlets when, in fact, they're not independent at all. At all. And so that's the I think that's one of the harms that I, you know, diagnose as being worthy of concern and public policy. And, and, and ultimately, the one of the prescriptions that I talk about to address it isn't really about, you know, the implication, in my view, shouldn't be, well, platforms should just start removing stuff much more aggressively. That's not what I think they should do. I think fundamentally it's an intel analysis problem where because the source of the harm is really about bad patterns of behavior, where you have a foreign state entity that's basically misrepresenting who they are, that's artificially pumping out content uh, to in order to suppress other viewpoints, you can actually... Uh, address this issue the same way that a lot of platforms address basically spam uh, by looking at patterns of signals of bad behavior, patterns of bad behavior without looking at the viewpoint or the content or the veracity at all. And so ultimately, I think that's a much um, more sound footing for platforms to be in than to get in the business of making subjective judgments about what people are saying online. Right. I mean, I think what you're hinting at is basically going after 
or traffic analysis of what looks to be like botnet traffic or obviously fake traffic, like whatever the actual content actually is. And is that kind of what you're, you're hinting at? Yeah. And I'd say it might even be a little bit narrower than that, where um, it's uh, botnet traffic and uh, traffic that looks authentic, uh, but that's specifically linked to activity um, linked to foreign state backed entities. So one way that platforms can go about doing this um, could be, you know, there is the universe of uh, governments that do the government agencies doing this is very finite and we know who they are. And we know that these places have physical addresses and IP addresses and, and all these different internet properties. And so from that standpoint, you can start to reverse engineer from there their footprints online. Um, and so I think it's actually a solvable problem to, you know, find what their media properties are and, uh, you know, take action against them when in cases when they do violate, you know, when they do engage in that behavior. Right. Right. So, yeah. So again, there's no question that, you know, these efforts are, are real. I guess, you know, again, going back to like the PTSD I had in like 2016, 2017, writing about this, or even looking at now, the, the, the sort of realization that like the whole Russiagate thing was obviously not nothing, but was, well, I don't know, maybe you have your view on it. But, but my read on the whole Russiagate thing and the Mueller report and the whole thing, at the end of the day, there wasn't this whole web of sort of collaboration there, right? And in some sense, at some point, you know, you have like an autoimmune reaction that in some sense being so guarded and being so willing to believe that your enemies are you know, so, so su successfully acting against you in some sense it has its own downside. And I wonder, I, I don't know, it, it just, I, I, again, I totally agree that, that it's correct. But look, I mean, open and closed societies have always had this asymmetry, right? In the first Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, the Soviet Union would constantly plant all sorts of stories, right? Not to mention have the sympathies of all sorts of, you know, media and reporters um, all the time, right? I mean, this is just the nature of the game between autocratic and democratic societies. There's, there's always this, this unfair advantage they have in the ability to sw potentially sway the public discourse in a way that we don't have to sway the Chinese discourse at all, right? Like, it'd be very hard to play this game in reverse. So, but I, again, I just wonder, yeah, at, at some point, does it become the sort of autoimmune reaction in which, like, the cost of reacting is worse than the threat? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I, I don't think, I, I don't think, I don't think people should be overreacting as much as, I mean, we have, we currently have laws like the Foreign Agents Registration Act. I mean, it's not like, it's not currently deemed legal for a foreign government, let alone, you know, an adversarial foreign government to have agents running around the United States pretending, you know, masquerading as um, business people. I mean, typically agents have to disclose their affiliations with these foreign state entities. And so in a way, it's kind of the same thing online where um, if you're, you know, the, uh, the Minnesota Times Journal press, you know, but you're, but you're actually uh, straight out of the CCP, uh, readers online should really be able to know that. And if you're pumping out a ton of information because you don't like Trump or you don't like Biden you know, in a way that that's intent that's designed to intentionally manipulate what people see in their feeds. Um, I think it's basically. I mean, I I find myself to always be a bit appalled and you know cringing when business leaders start parroting talking points of the CCP because they're afraid of facing economic sanctions. And 
and you know in our country we should have free speech and i find that there's something a little bit um that makes me uncomfortable when i see foreign autocratic governments um you know trying to distort our open debates in ways that are deceptive i mean i think it's one thing if it's obviously you know no one's arguing to prevent the the chinese embassy from issuing a statement or even you know china daily from publishing its articles but it's more about engaging in these coordinated and inauthentic activities um that um that that you know the spirit of that vi- you know is contrary to existing laws that we have in the analog world right 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 um yeah i mean yeah i i think that fight's always again like i said it's i think it's always going to be there and it's just there's no getting around it and 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 the dictators always have always have the advantage sure. um one thing that did freak me out like that would actually make me lose sleep is the sort of the hardware side of it which which is the chapter after and there yeah. i mean dude, that is just nuts because i mean there the hardware advantage china has is almost total not just that's where the big game is Right, right, exactly, and, it, and it's not just in the U.S. I mean, you also cite that a lot of the the five G or or various networking equipment all over the world is actually run by China, right? In a way that um, I, I hate this analogy. I think it's kind of inexact, but to some degree, it is true. If you actually go back and read um, histories of the original telegraph, the first telegraph cables were actually laid by American companies, actually, <laughs> and Europeans were very annoyed by it, and of course. Americans almost certainly probably did use it to listen in on conversations and stuff. So it's just funny to see China actually stepping through those same, the same historical footsteps. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah, They really, they really um, understand, you know, as I I write in the book that uh, in, in the 21st century, um, uh, information is control and infrastructure. uh, Control is power and information infrastructure is control. And, uh, and China really understands that incredibly well. And I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head that, um, you know, to your, to your earlier point, obviously what's going on on the front end with information operations is, I think is very unsavory and is unhealthy for our society, but it's not gonna make or break our society the same way that um, if our hardware is compromised, that's all the IP of our companies. It's potentially all the deepest, darkest secrets of all of our politicians, journalists, um, business leaders. And it's incredibly corrosive to our national sovereignty. Um, so it's, it's really, really important to not only secure our, the, the infrastructure of uh, our hardware, uh, but, but also prevent China from being able to be, embed back doors in the hardware infrastructure of other countries. Because otherwise, what risks happening is, um, you know, similar to the way that an iron curtain d- uh, separated the world into different spheres of influence in the 20th century, you could very much see a silicon curtain divide this world into techno blocks, what I call techno blocks in the book, um, in the 21st century, where you have people living. And on one part of the world where they have a social score that China monitors, where they have all of these different, um, everything that they do is constantly being monitored, surveilled, you know, their access to schools, their access to employment opportunities, their ability to travel uh, is all predicated on uh, how they engage, you know, the speech they engage in, 
the things they click on, the people they associate with uh, relative to how sympathetic all of those different um, social metrics are relative to the CCP. And if they're sympathetic, then, you know, they'll probably be treated favorably in that system. And if they're not sympathetic, they'll probably see their lives curtailed uh, incredibly narrowly. And obviously it's, uh, you know, uh, ultimately where people can end up, we already know because China, you know, it could be, uh, people could end up arrested in in concentration camps. And we already know that because China currently has, um, forced labor camps and re-education camps, uh, so does, you know, so-called re-education camps that are the size of 139 football fields. They're absolutely enormous. Um, They amount to um, crimes against humanity. And according to the State Department and uh, the administrations from both parties, they also amount to genocide. And it's incredibly alarming to see the world's second largest economic power being engaging in genocide against its own people. Uh, some estimated 3 million Uyghurs that are currently in China's um, uh, you know, labor camps. So I think for us, I mean, it really brings this existential question as to, you know, how hard do we want, should we take this threat? Um, and And how seriously should we think about preventing China from being able to extend its influence to other countries and extend its political system to other countries through information technology. And as I argue in the book, I think that ultimately it is an existential threat to democracy. So, well, so two questions there. So one is, I mean, to what ability does China actually have the ability to extend its political system? Because I, I think one difference that I would cite with the Soviet Union, right, is that, you know, the Soviet Union, you know, however gray and drab it might seem in retrospect or in the, you know, Netflix Chernobyl show, you know, the vision of communism was an extraordinarily attractive one. I mean, I, I wouldn't be speaking English in the U.S. if my parent hadn't fled or, you know, hadn't, <laughs> hadn't fled the Soviet proxy state in the Western Hemisphere, i.e. Cuba, right? So the thought that literally the most Americanized and capitalist country in Latin America could actually flip to the other side, um, and, and not just Cuba, I mean, you know, states all over all over Eastern Europe, obviously, and Sub-Saharan Africa and all over the place, right, were swayed to the Soviet system. And it was an exportable model to some degree. But, you know, one thing that I have, and obviously China's a real threat, but what, one thing that I have, have trouble imagining is the sort of soft power of China, right? Like, I, I can't imagine, I don't know, Tanzanian elites or uh, Ugandan elites where they built the airport sending their children to study at Beijing universities, but maybe, maybe I have a poverty of imagination. I mean, do, do you really think that, that that aspect of the Cold War will be replayed with China? Um, I don't know that it's so much about the elites wanting to send the, uh, their kids study in Beijing as much as the elites really liking and growing attached to money and power and China providing a path to them, a very clear path to them, to both uh, prosper economically through trade relations with China, as well as solidify and consolidate their grip uh, over political power domestically. And so I think to them, that's probably pretty appealing. And when I also say prosper, I don't mean the country, I mean themselves personally, because obviously, as we've seen a lot with, um, with China, you know, one of the patterns that emerges with a lot of the countries that it, it engages with um, 
especially in developing parts of the world, is that the commercial relationship is often tends to revolve around uh, basically trade focused on, on raw materials that China needs for its factories in order to produce finished products that it exports to the rest of the world. And, uh, and, and, and China basically uses a variety of tools to pay off the leadership of that country in order to get access to pre- preferential uh, trade deals. So uh, the, the people at the grassroots level, I think it takes a very long time for the people to actually feel the economic benefits of some of those uh, trade deals. And, uh, you know, the leaders like it because they can point to a road that was built, uh, even if that road basically connects a mine to a port. Um, it's it's tangible, but you know we have been seeing over the last few years a slight change in the direction of public opinion, where even in countries that have historically actually had pretty friendly postures towards China, now China is really building a reputation for um, uh, basically laying debt traps for a lot of these countries, and you know which I'm happy to kind of go into a little bit more, but um, but. One of the interesting dynamics that we've seen is um, China actually juxtaposing uh, its its um, uh, you know trade proposals with these countries with investments in information infrastructure like Huawei, and in a lot of ways, it's kind of two sides of the supply chain piece and the raw materials piece and the information infrastructure piece are two sides of the same coin. Uh, in the book, I basically talk about how the back end essentially has two parts to it. There is the information infrastructure part, uh, and then there is the networks that build the networks. And the networks that build the networks are basically China's grip over supply chains. Uh, and you know, one of the reasons that China is so embedded in Africa is because it needs those raw materials in order to produce the finished products that it makes and exports it to the rest of the world. And so ultimately for us as a country, one of the things that we need to think about securing for the purpose of national security as well as our economic security is uh, is not just the information infrastructure, but it's also the supply chain piece and the networks that build the networks. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a random piece of news, uh, I'm sure you followed it for, for those listening. There's a whole like brouhaha in Uganda because apparently um, China built uh, – Uganda's main airport in, in, in exchange for debt. And there were some rumors that if the Ugandans default on the debt, China would seize the airport. I'm not quite sure what you do when you seize another country's airport. But in any case, the Chinese have now denied that yeah. they're going to seize the airport. But um, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah, no, yeah, that, that is a, a recent development. And you're right, there was a big cycle around it. And I'm happy that, um, I'm happy to see that it got attention because you know, in, in prior years, some of, some of these types of things would happen and it would sort of fly under the radar, but, uh, but it, but it was kind of encouraging to see people talking about it. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, one thing you get into, and again, like I mentioned, it could be, you know, you're very brave in that you actually have policy proposals at the end. Um, and I, I find it fascinating because of course, you know, the sort of the rhetoric or the policy agenda of, you know, bringing manufacturing back home, you know, isn't unique to your to your book. There are many politicians who are talking about it these days. As as a random example, not not to necessarily associate you with them, but just where I, where I also heard this recently, and I also posed myself the question at the National Conservative Conference that I went to, which is this sort of weird conference of like 
anyway, I'm doing a piece on it. It's a long story, but you know, it's people like JD Vance um, and Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley and stuff there. And a lot of them, um, and, and again, not to like throw you in that political bucket by any means, but they, you know, but they also had, they were also sort of proposing bringing manufacturing back home. And I actually interviewed Ted Cruz. And when I was like, dude, like, how, how do you do this? Like I, everyone understands there's a problem. Like we can't produce surgical masks during a pandemic. This is kind of an issue and we're completely beholden to the manufacturing base. And, you know, he was very thin on the details. You, however, do include more details in your book. So I'm curious, uh, and, and you've worked in the policy world. So I'm curious how you see this working. Because I think you actually cited the scene in which like Obama turned to Steve Jobs and asked like, hey, how do we manage to manufacture the iPhone in the US? And Steve Jobs famously said, those, those jobs aren't coming back, <laughs> right? But how do we make those jobs come back? Mm-hmm. So I think, I mean, you're right that uh, one of the reasons that I, um, that I use that quote is because I think that captured in such a crisp way the, predom- the predominant ethos of an entire era where we just completely took for granted for such a long time that those jobs are never coming back. And that was kind of the bedrock assumption that we made to make so many different important policy as well as foreign policy, domestic policy as well as foreign policy decisions. And I think it's healthy that today a lot of people are double clicking on that and asking, well, wait a minute, why can't some of those jobs come back? And is China doing something that is metaphysically impossible for other countries to do? Uh, or, you know, are we actually able to repatriate some of those manufacturing activities? And so I think that uh, one of the legwork that the policy world is going to have to to do is um, basically divide the universe of manufactured products into three buckets. There is the the bucket of goods that um, are so critical to our economic and national security that they have to be made here in the United States. Then there is the bucket of goods that are not critical at all, and we don't really care where it comes from. And, and then there's a third bucket that's basically about um, it's important, but not vital and can come from some sort of allied space. You know, it can come from South Korea. For example, South Korea obviously is home to Samsung, which makes a lot of elect- electro- advanced electronics. Um, it could come from Australia, which has a lot of rare earth materials. It could come from, you know, Europe, which is home to Nokia and Ericsson, which make a lot of 5G equipment. So, um, and I think figuring out uh, in the policy world, how do we, how should we think about uh, different categories of products? You know, how do, how should we categorize these different products in order to have an organized approach to legislating and creating principles around this? I think is going to be incredibly useful in order to avoid painting with too broad a brush. You know, and because uh, ultimately we're not going to reshore everything, nor do we need to. But there are some things where it does make sense for the long term. And so I think it's, it's important to kind of be able to parse, you know, what's important, what's vital, and what's unimportant in order to go about this strategically. Right. I mean, it, you know, it's funny. And again, I, I'm not a hardware guy, but the few times I've tried to figure out how difficult it would be. I mean, if, if you look at, for example, what, like, what fraction of the value of the iPhone is in some sense saved, or even what fraction of the iPhone in some sense you know, what fraction of the margin actually comes from the cost savings in manufacturing in China? It's actually a lot smaller than you'd think. It's, it's not some massive slug of margin. But if you talk to people who work in hardware, and I, and I know some startup friends, it's, it's, not, it's less about the cost so much as, as it's the speed of tooling and the ability, particularly if you're doing it at scale, the ability to actually spin up a lot of production very, very quickly, which is where China really wins because it has entire like 
factory cities that are bigger than American cities yeah. that do nothing but just manufacture things. And so it, it's not really cost and labor savings per se. It's spinning up that. But I guess that, that means the challenge is almost harder in that it, it would mean reindustrializing or reproducing another Detroit, say. Um, or, or is it? Or the challenge is not those. And that, that's not actually the, the problem. I, I'm so happy you bring that up because I think so often uh, a lot of people that talk, uh, that talk about this issue will only focus on one data point, which is, oh, but China make things, you know, they're, they're able to do things much more cheaply than the U.S. And I think that that omits so, such a bigger picture of, you know, China has been able to become the factory floor of the world for more reasons than just their ability to make things cheaply. And also their ability to, to make things at a low cost stems from uh, a broader range of reasons than just cheap labor. I mean, it's the fact that they don't pay for research and development because they steal a lot of the IP. It's the fact that they get, um, they're able to get raw inputs for their finished products at a very low cost by basically um, uh, having a very neo-colonial, you know, foreign policy towards Africa. It's the fact that they're able to do a lot of these things that basically allow them to sell, you know, and a lot of their companies do get state subsidies. I mean, Huawei has, uh, by some some accounts, 70 has received $75 billion in state support, uh, which has allowed them to basically sell Huawei below cost in various parts of the world in order to internationalize it, not out of philanthropy because it's not a nonprofit, but because the Chinese government sees real benefits, strategic benefits to other countries using Huawei. And so, um, and so at the end of the day, for us, I think the, the solution is, first of all, I mean, I think it's incredibly important to um, uh, reverse our use of, of some of these companies because so we can't allow our, our companies that don't receive state support to compete with these state-backed companies on an even scale and, you know, and accordingly find ways to basically help um, promote, you know, our, and partner with our industry uh, to, to come out ahead in a lot of these technology contests. Right. I mean, and there's a lot of areas that America could actually compete, right? Like the fact you don't have to ship it across an ocean actually is important, right? Like that's yeah, it's yeah. cheap, but it's actually not necessarily fast. The boats still only go 20 knots and it's a, and it's a 7,000 mile long ocean. And so like, there's a lot of places that the United States could actually compete effectively. Um, but I, again, it's like, but, and, and, but, but, that, but that's where technology could potentially be incredibly transformative to solve a lot of these problems. I mean, one of, one of, the, um, one of the interesting differences that, you know, to me stands out more and more is Xi Jinping is fundamentally a techno-utopian where he thinks that every problem has some sort of technology solution, even if sometimes he, you know, he thinks that, um, that, you know, he views like freedom of speech as a problem. <laughs> and, you know, the, pro- the way that he defines problems, obviously differ a little bit than the way that we would see them in the West versus in the US. Um, I think it's kind of a shame that our policy world has grown to view technology through a much more pessimistic lens. And there is, and, and, but I do think that there's an opportunity in the sense that right now we're sort of entering, you know, this secular trend where uh, there's so much investment that is being directed at companies working on incredibly ambitious difficult engineering problems, whether it's the space industry that's, you know, been the recipient of billions of dollars, 
uh, or, you know, fusion energy or, or all these different areas. And I find that incredibly exciting because at the end of the day, you're right that the key for us to succeed, I mean, how does a, a country of 330 million people, you know, uh, win against the country of 1.4 billion? How did, you know, David win against Goliath? And the answer is tech, because that is going to, that's what is going to allow us to punch way above our weight. I mean, that's how Israel is able to, um, you know, be the the geopolitical p- powerhouse that it is in the Middle East, despite being surrounded by countries that are much bigger than them in a very unfriendly neighborhood. Yeah, it's funny. I, as a random thing, the last guest I had on was Mike Eisenberg, who's a big VC in, in Israel. And he was complaining that the tech center, that the tech sector is running so hot they don't have employees like they've literally run out of people um even though like israel pretty pretty routinely floats more ipos than like the entire eu um but yeah i mean it's it's to your point it's about technology but but to that point getting to another chapter in your book that i thought was interesting specifically because in my case i i'm like now i'm now in the swamp jacob i accepted a, a fellow thing at the um at the Lincoln, um, at the, <laughs> shit, I almost made the mistake myself, sorry. The Lincoln Network, not the Lincoln Project people, okay? It's a, it's a different organization that um, is, is uh, a very much a very tech-centered <laughs> think tank. And just about, I think, like the only DC think tank I've ever seen walking the streets of Silicon Valley um, and actually inviting real tech insiders to their events and stuff. So, um, but one thing you mentioned is the hill in the valley and the fact that, you know, again, getting back to China, there, the public and private sector work hand in hand, which often is a negative thing, right? Like you can see them smacking down or like banning crypto mining just like in one fell swoop, although it's a boon to the United States, it's probably bad for China. But on the other hand, they do work together, right? You mentioned the subsidies, you know, protectionism, it turns out can actually work, right? <laughs> like, there, you know, it actually, well done protectionism is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, the, the Brazilian aerospace mm-hmm. industry exists because, because of it, the, the French car industry whatever its merits actually, you know, exist because of it. Um, so like protectionism can actually work. But in this country, the private and the public sector, particularly yeah. in tech, are just completely at odds, right? There, there, there is, I mean, there is still some funding and stuff, but it's not like it was before. And, and you highlight that in, in an entire chapter, in fact. Yeah, and I would almost kind of view it as, um, I mean, I think where I differ, I, I'm philosophically... I think of myself as someone that's decidedly in the camp of democracy and free markets. But at the same time, I think that I'm not so maximalist about it that um, I think that it's a little bit unrealistic to protect, to, you know, um, uh, aim for uh, a state of society where the government has absolutely no intervention at all, you know, in, in the market. And so when we think about when in prior chapters and in history, we've successfully overcome great geopolitical challenges. One of the strengths of our system is we have incredibly innovative, talented people that come from all over the world. And I think that is such a comparative advantage and that we can harness, you know, as a country where by, you know, with the government basically harnessing that ecosystem in order to solve hard problems. Um, for example, you know, GM partnered with the government was the government was basically a customer of GM and made everything from airplanes to tanks to all kinds of artillery that the government needed to fight World War II. And GM embraced the slogan, victory is our business. And that is the kind of pat- you know, patriotic thinking that I think is a shame that it's been a bit eroded today because 
doing business with the U.S. government and being patriotic gets a bit of a bad rep. And um, and ultimately, I think that's a loss because, you know, this contest and helping the U.S. succeed isn't just about wrapping ourselves in the flag, but it's really about defending ideas that are universal. I mean, President Clinton eloquently once said, and I'm sure other presidents have actually said the same thing, which is that America is an idea as much as it is a country. And so part of that idea is that people can come here from around the world and get a fair shake and, you know, uh, fulfill their God-given potential. And and what we have on the other side of the Pacific is a model, uh, is a country that wants to see the world run along very different rules. And ultimately, I think that's why, you know, and companies have every have every reason to want to work with the U.S. government in order to make sure that we continue living in a world where you have an open and free internet, uh, rules, you know, fair rules that are adjudicated by independent judiciaries, not by political cronies, um, and, and where people can prosper in a way that's actually fair and not determined by the rule of a single person. Right. I mean, there's still a lot going for the U.S., right? Even though, um, you know, right. I mean, the, the same... <laughs> I often joke that you know it's it's one of the sort of weird contradictions of contemporary liberal thinking that you simultaneously have to think that the U.S. is this you know horrible racist xenophobic place, but at the same time we have to let in everybody who wants to come in despite the fact you know despite item, <laughs> item number one. In other words, there are still lots of people who want to come to the U.S. and raise their children here in a way that it's not so much it's not true for China. In fact, I often think I used to spend time in Vancouver for a bunch of reasons that aren't worth going into, and it's amazing how many empty houses there are there, which is literally just like you know, places of refuge for, for Chinese elites who, you know, what do they know that we don't know that, like, you know, as far as I know, American elites aren't, like, buying up entire cities as a place to flee when the American regime ends. Definitely not. <laughs> right? No. It's just like, huh. And, and that, I think, is actually, I mean, you know, in, in, in uh, the last chapter of, of my book, I basically say that um, it's kind of like a plea to, for Americans to avoid going from denial to despair, where I think in the foreign policy community, for a long time, people deny that China was a problem. You know, they denied the fact that we had to rethink our trade relationship and um, and the fact that China was an adversary or that we're in a cold war with them. And to today, where you have a lot of thinkers that basically directly or indirectly um, are, you know, are expressed a lot of despair about the fact that, you know, whether about whether or not the U.S. can actually win this contest. And at the end of the day, this contest is about so much more than just you know, a contest between two countries, it's a contest between ideas and models. And so, and when we look at it that way, we have every reason to be, to have confidence in ourselves about the fact that our model is qualitatively superior to theirs in the sense that they have a model that is, you know, Xi Jinping can surround himself by masses of armed men, tanks and airplanes, and yet he's terrified of a mouse of free thought and words and his own people. And what that says is we're the model that's on the side of people's universal aspirations, uh, and they're not. And so we shouldn't take anything for granted because they're incredibly, they're probably the most formidable competitor we've ever had in our history. But we are, I think, still are on the right side of history. Yeah, I mean, in, in many ways, 
I mean, on the one hand, China, China seems like a, a somewhat less fearsome opponent because for the reasons cited earlier, right, they're, they're not cobbling together a globe-spanning empire that in some sense wants to replicate the communist model. But in some senses, it's actually way more intimidating because unlike the Soviet, right, I mean, the, the, sort of, the sort of received wisdom for half a century of sort of liberal capitalist triumphalism, right, was, well, you know, the U.S. can actually still generate better Hollywood movies and blue jeans and a better quality of life, right? Like, the, you know, the Soviet Union at the end of the day, like people in, in yeah. East Germany would look West with envy at what was there. And, it, you know, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's not so clear that's, that's true anymore, right? You go to Chinese cities and they're not bleak, drab, sort of horror shows like the Soviet Union kind of was compared to the West. On, on the contrary, arguably, you know, I, you know, their cities are obviously better run than, say, San Francisco to cite one glaring example. Um, and so, you know, it's, <laughs> so it makes it a harder challenge. Well, arguably, politicians in San Francisco have emulated China way too much, so maybe that's the problem. <laughs> Well, no, but there's this like the horrible hippie Berkeley communism. It's not like the technocratic Chinese communism. It's, it's a whole different bag. Right? Like, they, you know, they can't actually make the trains around time. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, but anyway, it's, it's more challenging because, again, that was sort of the case that you can make. And now it's, it's not so obvious, right, that, you know, the Chinese have lifted up you yeah. know, hundreds of millions of their own people up from poverty. And it's not democracy. Right. <laughs> it's, it's, that's not identically yep. true, that liberal democracy is the route to social mobility and prosperity. Um, so what do you think? Well, so I, 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 I we are coming to the top of the hour. I see somebody waiting to, to a caller who wanted to ask a question. So I maybe want to pull them up. But is there anything else you want to address, Jacob? Because, again, towards the end of the book, you yeah. actually have sort of a, a recipe book of policies. Um, everything from we touched on some of them already around trade policy around um, Silicon Valley, DC collaboration. Is there anything else you want, you want to get into on the sort of more prescriptive side of your book? Yeah, I think, I mean, the two main points that I would make, and before we can pass it on to folks that have questions, are I think at home it's incredibly important for Congress to pass an outbound CFIUS framework, which basically means uh, that the U.S. government should have the ability to review on grounds of national security investments from the United States into China because this has historically been such a major problem for us where you have a situation where Ray Dalio is launching, you know, uh, a $1.25 billion fund just in the last six months uh, that is going to be about allocating capital into China. That capital could come from pension funds, retirement, American retirement accounts. Uh, and that is going to get going to be directed at funding Chinese companies, some of which may have affiliations with the People's Liberation Army that the Pentagon cons- competes with. That is the kind of unhealthy system that we should really uh, think about uh, reversing. So that's what we should do at home. And then abroad, I think one of the high-level prescriptions that um, I think is ripe for us to uh, think about is what I call deglobalizing China's eye of Sauron, which is a little bit of a colorful way to basically say that, you know, because China is exporting its internet infrastructure, it's developing the capacity to effectively have what, uh, you know, an, an equivalent to the eye of Sauron, which is basically the ability to know all things in all places at all times, uh, to conduct surveillance on a scale that we've never seen before. And we need to deglobalize their capability to do that. And that means reversing uh, you know, the adoption of Huawei infrastructure in various countries and blocking their ability to export uh, that infrastructure to other countries. That might mean us figuring out a way to offer an alternative as it, it'll, it'll mean carrots and sticks. It, you know, a positive solution would be having an alternative uh, and then a stick-oriented solution 
might mean the types of sanctions that the Trump administration and the Biden administration have put in, have instated against Huawei, which have been effective. Right, and we're not alone in that. I mean, you meant you cite that you know several other European countries that are also banned Huawei equipment because they've gotten the memo, and you know obviously yeah. it's not a fanciful belief, and they're not dumb, and so. Um, and I think it's also, by the way, as a side thing, it's good that Trump is kind of out of the picture um, because uh, the anti-China thing was kind of his thing, and so anything Trump believed right. in, of course, was evil, yeah. and so. <laughs> um, and so you you couldn't sort of you know pursue that war in the way that you would have when Trump is going up and talking about it. So um, I'm glad now it's a Biden issue, <laughs> and we can think about it again. Um, yeah. <laughs> speaking of, of politics, not to put you on the spot, Jacob, but, but you mentioned you work for these campaigns, and again, one of the rare things about you, aside from writing the book, is that you actually got actively involved in politics. Is that going to be like a career area going forward? Are there other races we should expect you to be part of, or what, what's going to happen there? Um, I don't know. I mean, if, if I've, um, I think if I've observed anything in American politics is that, uh, the, the, um, you know, it's true. There's so the unpredictable happens. It's Margaret Thatcher's law of foreign politics. She gave a speech once and jokingly said, you know, Thatcher's law of, of, of politics is the unthinkable happens. Uh, and so, and so I think it's hard to predict several years in advance of the cycle, you know, who's going to run, what the landscape is going to look like. Um, but I think for me, politics is a space where it's really hard. It's incredibly energy consuming, but the mission is incredibly inspiring. And so I find to be drawn to it when, uh, when there's a candidate or when there's an issue set that I feel incredibly passionate about, you know, to be willing to just throw myself at it and, and work on it. And so if that happens, I mean... Obviously, I'd be happy to uh, be helpful to a candidate or, or a cause, you know, that that I'm passionate about. But it's it's hard to predict. I think this far out what that landscape's going to look like. Okay, one last question because you might actually be able to answer it. Yeah. I, I've always I've never quite under, well. I have my theories, but I've never, I've never totally understood why is it that techies so punch under the weight when it comes to tech? It's not for lack of investment because every major tech company has like a lobby group basically in, in Washington, but somehow they get raked over the coals. They have no influence in something as petty as SF urban policy. They, I mean, they really, they, they have very little influence outside of their, their tech kingdoms. Do you have some like high level take why, why that is? Well, I can't say that I have a universal answer, but I think one, um, uh, one thing that I've noticed is there, tech has a very idealistic culture for the better and for the worst. I mean, part of that idealism is what fuels, you know, the belief that the world can change. But I think that the flip side of that is I think it's an industry that has very little patience for the kind of, you know, game playing and um, maneuvering uh, and and also just bureaucracy that politics often entails. I mean, it entails a lot of hobnobbing, a lot of, you know, schmoozing, cajoling. Um, and if you are a tech person that likes to get stuff done, that likes to ship things, it can sometimes feel, um, uh, the, you know, the, the skills and the mindset that lends itself well to tech aren't necessarily the same as uh, people that like politics. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I can kind of understand, you know, why a lot of companies get lobbyists to kind of outsource that work because, um, because it's, um, it's not something that a lot of engineers have a lot of patience for.
Right. That was my theory too. But of course the counter argument is that, well, you know, I'm sure the oil companies not, don't necessarily like hobnobbing and like, you know, shipping and getting things done and yet they somehow managed to do it. But yeah, but I, but I think it's, you're still right in that. Yeah. There's something culturally about techies that in some sense they want to virtualize that away into the set of problems they don't really like thinking about, which is unfortunate. Cause again, I think it means that, you know, tech just punches under its weight. And, and in fact, it could actually, yeah. 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 And I mean, I think the tech industry also skews towards slightly more introverted personalities, which also right. means that it's people that are predisposed to not enjoy, you know, spending a lot of time going to cocktail parties and, um, and engaging in small talk. It's not, you know, a lot of people in tech um, um, don't naturally gravitate towards those types of settings. Right. So if you've got a minute, Jacob, I, Steve has been waiting to ask a question. And if he's still there, sure. I would like to invite him up. Sure. Um, no problem. Uh, make next caller. Oh, okay. Steve, can you hear us? I'm not... Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah. Thanks. Uh, thanks for hey. bringing me up. Yeah. Hey, I, uh, what's on yeah, your mind? It's a great show. Um, looking forward to checking out the book too. Uh, question is, is, you know, uh, I talk to people and they show me a piece of content and I'm like, you know, that's a, there's a good chance that that's misinformation. And the bottom of my head I had was, well, you know, this could be misinformation from uh, some state-sponsored um, entity, or it could be somebody just looking for profit, right? They don't care about the implications or the outcomes uh, of their inf- misinformation. And recently I was watching the uh, HBO's documentary on QAnon, and um, kind of what came out of that was uh, that the, um, it's kind of, kind of complicated, but like the later stages of Q's identity was taken over by, uh, you know, two individuals that run an image board, uh, HN, and they were really just doing it for, uh, just for trolling purposes almost. And that uh, it's kind of terrifying to me in thinking that, you know, if it, if it was this easy for uh, trolls to have an outsized influence in politics, you know, how much easier is it for foreign entities uh, to do the same? I was curious on your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I, I think that this is a space where, um, so first of all, I mean, let me preface my answer with, uh, just to dial back to the point that um, Antonio and I were making earlier, I do think that, you know, obviously I talk about there being two fronts of the Great War, and um, I I'm obviously passionately believe that the, the back end is the decisive one and the more important one. Um, with that being said, I mean, obviously, I do think that there's something unhealthy about having foreign state-backed actors interfering in our information environment in ways that are deceptive and coordinated. Um, I, I'm not really sure, you know, what the linkage is between QAnon and foreign state-backed entities, but I do know that historically, one of the things that has made it hard in the space uh, to, to tackle the space is that a lot of times, especially people on the Hill, will refer to things like misinformation, we'll use the words misinformation, fake news, to refer to all kinds of different things. Um, hyperpartisan content, foreign interference, you know. And so ultimately, um, you know, that means that the debate doesn't really go anywhere because, um, because people just talk past each other. And so you know, the, the kinds of issues that I talk about in the book are specifically around foreign interference and are, are definitely not you know, around the the broader issue of lies in politics, which have, have always been around. I mean, you have lies in politics, 
through every medium of communication uh, in TV, print, you know, on the street, uh, as well as on the internet. And I just think that that's, you know, it's always been around and always will be. And, and, and it's, it's also a healthy thing. I mean, Bezos once eloquently said that unsavory speech is the kind of speech that needs to be protected because speech that everyone agrees with typically isn't the speech that's threatened. It's the speech that's unsavory and unpopular. And so I think parsing out, you know, what we mean by misinformation and, and, and what that spectrum looks like is incredibly important. Yeah. And just as a random comment on that, right? Like not to say that it's not a problem, but we've always had this problem. If you actually go back and read the history of the, and I know it sounds almost cliche, but if you read the early history of the, of the printing press, it, it was for, I mean, everyone thinks, Oh, you know, Gutenberg's Bible that, that I mean, that was a, a, the tiniest fraction of the first things that actually got printed. It was actually the most ridiculous, you know, partisan content of the time that was chock full of misinformation. And that's most of what the printing press was actually used for very early on. Although we like to remember things like, you know, the Bible and various other t- texts, which is not to say that it's not dangerous. Of course, you know, obviously it led to massive turmoil and violence, but, <clears throat> but like Jacob said, in some sense, we somehow lost the, we've somehow lost the nerve to say, yes, we know this is going to be dangerous and potentially bad and it's going to be bad content, but it's still protected and it's worth protecting because free speech is a principle worth taking risks for. Somehow that's just not a belief we, we collectively have anymore, at least in, in my impression. Yeah. I definitely lean to that side and which just like makes me um, concerned about this is that it seems like, you know, the, uh, you know, owners of HN would lean that way as well, but then it almost, you know, they, they say these things with a smile on their face knowing that, you know, this is where they, you know, generate revenue for different boards that they run or whatever. Um, but then they make it harder for proponents of free speech to, um, you know, really push their message when uh, you have, like you're talking about before, with people that are, you know, not authentic in, in their speech. Um, but, but yeah, thank you. Thank you for taking my question. Yeah, of course. No worries. I, I'm going to channel Balaji and just say Web3 is the answer, man. Just crypto is going to solve all this. <laughs> I, I don't totally believe it. But actually, I'm starting to believe it more than I, than I used to. Um, okay, Jacob. Well, well, thanks for having us on. We've run over a little bit. Um, I don't think anyone else is coming up to ask a question. So thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. And I really enjoyed the book. And um, how, how is it going, by the way? Have, I mean, what's been the reaction? Like, you know, do you, do you have fan mail? Have people on the Hill? Because this is a very policy-oriented book. Have, you know, has it resonated with people in positions who can actually change kind of? Yeah, I think it's, um, I think it's definitely helped um, uh, tease, a, tease a, a policy conversation around it, which has been incredibly exciting because that was the primary objective of the book is to encourage, um, you know, broaden awareness about this issue and also encourage more policy conversations about it. Great. Well, I'm glad tech people are actually getting involved because, you know, I think I had some snarky tweet like two days ago that like, uh, you know, because I was invited to join, I'm not going to name names, whatever. One of these like academic research group people. And I just like looked at the list of people and it's like, yeah, I mean, they're all very well known and known as experts. Like none of these people have worked like a single day inside a tech company. Yeah, I know. And it's a very not, common not that you problem. have to have. Right. I, not, not that you have to have to have opinions about tech because, you know, what the hell, there's, you don't need like a license to have an opinion these days. But if you're actually shaping policy, I think actually having done it is, is, act, is actually kind of important. Um, but yeah, um, I, yeah. but I, anyhow, I hope that this is, I, I hope that you're the beginning of a wave and that more people actually get involved in it. Um, I, at least in the micro in San Francisco, you definitely see techies getting more involved in civic life and, you know, people like. That's great. Jay, 
Gary Tan come to mind, who I think probably wouldn't have in the past. And so hopefully that also plays out at a more national and macro scale. Um, um, so, yeah, cool. That's well, well, thanks. Thanks again, Jacob. And thanks for again, having book, me. It was really fun. I really enjoyed it. And again, yeah. And again, the book is Wires of War and it's got this super cool cover with like a dragon and an American eagle. Yes. Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, actually wrestling over like, uh, you know, a fiber optic undersea cable and it looks pretty cool. Actually, it's quite, quite eye catching. Um, so buy the book. And again, thanks, Jacob, for, um, for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks, everybody. Bye.